0: I'm Bill Bupert, retired Army officer and irregular warfare practitioner and scholar. Welcome to Chasing Ghosts, an irregular warfare podcast, the show that examines the mythos, lost history, bad thinking, martial malpractice, and government incompetence that informs so much of irregular warfare. I want to peek behind the curtain at the vast machinery and briar patch politics of insurgency and counterinsurgency and everything in between. Now. Let's go ghost hunting together. Welcome to episode 25, approaching our first anniversary within days of this podcast, Chasing Ghost in a Regular Warfare podcast. The title of today's episode is Technicals, Toyota's Go to War. A few housekeeping details, as I am always want to do. I just recently, on one of my business trips, had the ability to finally walk Battle Road, Lexington and Concord, Boston, and everything in between, that the National Park Service has preserved part of that corridor, in which on April 19th and 20th, 1775, the secession and divorce festivities for America separating itself from London began as a result of British mischief, and of course attempting to seize American colonial, and they were British colonial at the time, but in this case, to be more specific, American colonial powder, arms, artillery, and other items that the British government in London and its colonial governors on the Atlantic seaboard found a bit mischievous and not wanting to enable the colonists to have that kind of military hard power, sought to seize it and in the process initiated the divorce proceedings. And I commend the trip to everybody, and it just astonishes me that uh, Massachusetts and what Massachusetts and Boston is is a far cry from the very reasons that that divorce initiated itself in 1775. They couldn't be more polar opposites than they are. As I mentioned a moment ago, This happens to be episode 25, which means that on my fortnightly schedule, we are approaching the one year anniversary of this podcast. I wanted to thank my listenership. I wanted to thank those of you who listen to, who actively correspond with me via cgpodcast at pm.me. That is cgpodcast at pm.me. Thank you for your listenership. Thank you for your constructive criticism. Thank you for your comments, your questions, and such. And, uh, I am ever so grateful to have gotten folks to listen to these bloviations, and there it is. In this episode, while I discuss Toyotas, and Toyotas are certainly in the title, I have been the proud owner of four Land Cruisers in my lifetime. I'm officially a cruiser head. I still drive Toyotas. I consider them to be the most reliable and best vehicle that, in my modest capacity and income, am able to have. And I love them. And I always was fascinated by the use of these technically thin-skinned, unarmored vehicles for the most part, and the role that they played in warfare, specifically irregular warfare, and even more specifically, the asymmetrical nature of this warfare. We will discuss later in this episode what happened when the Libyans, who were... Equipped with Soviet and Russian class vehicles, most armored, to include tanks, were defeated in the 1980s and the 1990s by pickup trucks, thin-skinned vehicles, unarmored four-wheel drives, and in some cases, two-wheel drives, most of which tend to be Toyotas. And the reason for the title, of course, is because they are so ubiquitous in this warfare North, south, east, west, um, whether it's uh, on the African frontier, in the Middle East, even in South America, you will find that these redoubtable and utterly reliable vehicles, whether they be Land Cruisers or Hiluxes, which is the term for what you're familiar here in America and the West, seeing as a variant of the Tacoma, the smaller pickup truck, you don't see too many Tundras, which is the full size analog to the Ford and Chevy trucks in America, for instance, in Canada. You don't see a lot of those on the battlefield. I'm not certain why, but for the most part, what you see is Toyotas. Now, you will have on the African continent, there will be Land Rovers and such, but because they are British and because the British not only in all their military victories are victorious in spite of their best efforts— the British happened, when it comes to being, to uh, producing wheeled vehicles, produce some of the least reliable vehicles on planet Earth, especially in Africa. If one were to come here from Mars and watch Hollywood movies, you would think that Land Rovers and British Leyland products were everywhere in Africa. That would not necessarily be the case because they are far outstripped by the number of Toyota Land Cruisers, Hiluxes, Tacomas, and Toyota Thinskin trucks that are on the road throughout The entire continent of Africa. And you'll also find Chinese knockoffs of the Toyota chassis throughout Africa and the Middle East, but they are not as ubiquitous as the genuine Japanese article, which is highly prized. Uh, By way of a sidebar, when I was in Afghanistan, there were Ford Rangers that were being provided to the Afghan National Army. Terrible reliability, terrible performance. Uh, I, I I don't know if they would last a year or two or three, much less the decades that maintained and even less well-maintained Toyotas would do on a regular basis throughout conflict zones around the planet. Uh, besides a host of Internet sources that I used in researching this episode, uh, Osprey Military Publications, uh, literally hundreds, maybe thousands of books that they published – I have quite a sizable collection. Love these. You're probably familiar with them. Very thin tomes, around 50, 60, 70 pages, full of color illustrations and commentary and narrative. Highly recommend them if you're interested. They cover everything from weapons to uniforms to vehicles to aircraft to ships, you, you name it, and, and battles themselves and everything from the Roman ages up until today. Uh, the two that I took a look at was Kurdish armor against ISIS, YPG-SDF tanks, Technicals and AFVs in the Syrian Civil War, twenty fourteen to twenty nineteen, and also technicals, non-standard tech- tactical vehicles for the Great Toyota War to modern special forces. Highly recommend Osprey; really like it. As with all things, you will find uh, you know the information that you seek, but you can always drill down in the footnotes and the citations to see if you want to read even further in this. For the characterization of this episode, I do love doing things historically, and I do, do love examining the roots. And, of course, when it comes to vehicles that are driven by internal combustion engines, they have been around in warfare for the entirety of the 20th century, to include some very primitive ones that were employed in the Second Boer War in Africa. And then, of course, we had World War I emerging, where at the end of World War One we have tanks And during that war, to include T.E. Lawrence's theater in the Middle East, the employment of no less than Rolls-Royce thin-skinned trucks and vehicles were used in the prosecution of warfare. Now we fast forward to the 1930s and the 1940s. In the 1930s, we had these kind of vehicles probably first being tried by Italian forces During the Ethiopian and colonial wars they engaged themselves in in the 1930s when Mussolini was trying to reconstruct 2.0 of the Roman Empire, which all of us know failed miserably. And then, of course, during World War II, we have one of my favorite and most fascinating irregular warfare organizations in the history of the 20th century, and that would be the Long Range Desert Reconnaissance Group, which would become the formative basis and foundational touchstone for the formation of the Special Air Service. For those of you interested in that, there's some uh, great literature out there. Uh, I mean, you could probably build a literature, uh, you could probably build a library on all the literature that's built around the LRTG, uh, the SAS, And Captain Major Sterling, S-T-I-R-L-I-N-G, the founder and creator of the SAS and everything that has happened since that time, they employed a variety of vehicles, but their favorite one seemed to be a two or two and a half ton Chevy 300 CWT that they would employ almost ubiquitously uh, uh, across the board when they were conducting their operations in 1942 and 1943 in the desert in northern Africa. They used uh, Ford V8 pilot cars, uh, those Chevys, the 1311 by 3 Indian pattern pilot cars, Willys MB pilot cars, the Chevrolet WA patrol truck, the 30CWT that I was referring to. Most of these, by the way, were 4x2, not 4x4. The Ford F30 patrol truck, the Chevrolet patrol truck, Heavy section support trucks, support planes, the Germans and the Italians to a much lesser extent in northern Africa during World War II employed thin-skinned vehicles to conduct both scouting operations and also irregular warfare operations to harry the enemy flanks and rear. So having done my due diligence in discussing that, and that is a very fascinating part of irregular warfare, and we will cover that in future episodes when I talk about the Pink Panthers of the LRDG. We're going to fast forward to the 1970s and 1980s, and we're going to talk about a conflict that took place in Chad when Libya invaded Chad. And the French armed forces and the French foreign legion provided military assistance and training to the entirety of the Chadian army. And they were able to defeat with these Toyotas and these thin-skinned vehicles... Everything from infantry fighting vehicles to tanks to other vehicles that were used by the Libyans in the invasion south when they launched into Chad. But before we get into the specifics of that very campaign, let's address some of the foundational and definitional standards that we want to remain constrained in when we're discussing technicals. These technicals and thin-skinned pickup trucks mostly... They make an ideal choice for insurgent or guerrilla armies and armed forces. A decade before the humanitarian disaster in Somalia in the 1990s, as I mentioned, these Chadian forces used pickup trucks mounting heavy machine guns to include dishkas and such and anti-aircraft cannon to rout Libyan invaders and win the much heralded Great Toyota War. In Lebanon, factional militias rode into battle on all manner of technicals throughout the late 70s and into the 80s. Decades later, the technical became the mainstay of Libyan and Syrian insurgents, as I discussed earlier about the YPG and the Kurds. You know, it's, it's easy to see the advantages of the technical for these irregular forces. Firstly, there's a question of training. Most modern military vehicles require at least some degree of instruction. The more sophisticated the vehicle... The greater learning curve, whilst militias occasionally employ tanks and other capture-donated AFVs, armored fighting vehicles, they simply cannot make the most of such vehicles, nor can they maintain them. Nor can they take advantage of the fact that those vehicles I just mentioned are optimized, used en masse, and not as singular entities. Consequently, they are often relegated to duty as heavily armored but immobile pillboxes. Certainly in any combat with opposition tanks manned by competent crews, that fight will be quick and one-sided. By contrast, technicals can be driven by almost anyone, almost anyone except if you're in the United States, because most of these technicals have standard manual shifts, and most young people in the United States can't drive those. Parts are common and cheap, a key factor in their popularity, especially in developing nations. Even the heavy weapons that are mounted on the bed are typically Russian or Chinese manufactured, meaning they are built to operate with little maintenance and loose tolerances. Most are straightforward to operate, the proverbial point-and-shoot, perfect for the average militia gunman in the developing world. And with the exception of the conflict that you saw between Libya and Chad, technicals tend to be king in urban environments. I did want to dismiss one urban myth. And that is that if one watches Black Hawk Down, and we just had an episode very recently talking about Mogadishu 1993 and Operation Gothic Serpent, despite what the movie itself portrays in Black Hawk Down, no technicals were encountered and used against the U.S. and coalition forces during that campaign. And nicely, and an homage to Toyota, The supply of technicals, at least the base platform without weapons mounted, also neatly skirts any ban on prohibitions on military aid as they have legitimate civilian use. You know, in terms of tactics on the battlefield, the technical is, again, the ideal platform for the irregular, especially if what you're trying to do is employ speed and mass on the cheap against more modern opponents. At its simplest, they allow crew-served heavy weapons to be transported and employed where, where they're needed without the requirement for towing vehicles or limbers. The technical itself can also be rapidly redeployed, dynamic retasking, suiting perfectly for the shoot-and-scoot ethos of the guerrilla fighter, especially as characterized in the urban fight. Now, even in asymmetric conflicts against first-world opponents, this ability allows the technical at least some chance, Of escape from the inevitable mortar barrage or attack helicopter sortie. That is the usual fate for insurgent heavy weapons that outstay their welcome. You know, when you observe the Western Sahara and the Chad in particular, this mobility serves as an enabler of classic irregular raiding and swarm and ambuscade tactics. The supply of technicals to the Sawari People's Liberation Army, for example, allowed them to adapt centuries-old desert cavalry tactics, tactics like was employed by the uh, Bedouin Bedouin under Lawrence. Instead of using camels or stallions, the guerrillas outflanked and surprised their enemy in fast-moving Toyota pickup trucks. Similar tactics gave Chad the upper hand against Libyan conventional forces. The Libyans simply couldn't react fast enough To engage the agile Chadians, especially because they were constrained by an armed forces that did not prize innovation nor tactical expertise at the lower levels, whether those are enlisted or officer, which, as all of us familiar with warfare in the modern world and the ancient world knows, all the action, all the blood on the point of the spear takes place at the squad, platoon, and company level. So, for the purposes of this podcast, we're going to consider technicals to be armed civilian vehicles equipped with a rear-mounted, crew-served, heavy weapon, or similar armament. And we'll also cover a range of vehicles to include SUVs, pickups, cargo, and transport trucks, but all will have been modified with weapons. The key trait is that, to be really termed a technical, the vehicle in question must have begun life as a civilian design, And we will consider the odd example that falls outside of these criteria on occasion. But uh, for the most part, we we aren't going to deal with former military vehicles. We're going to to deal with civilian vehicles that have been reconfigured to serve a military purpose. And civilian vehicles used for resupply, medevac, transport, even if equipped with homemade armor, for instance, They don't fall into our classification as they do not carry any form of integral armament. So we're going to confine ourselves for those that are armed with weapons, machine guns from the light to the very heavy variety like the technical. I remember an incident I had read about in which the IRA had equipped a British car just outside of Heathrow Airport in London with mortars. When those mortars were actually employed to lob rounds into the airport proper, it actually crushed and collapsed both the car and the chassis as a result of, of uh, Newton's third law acting on said small British vehicle. Now, wh- what kind of weapons will we find? We'd find medium machine guns, and for our purposes, a medium machine gun is going to be characterized around the M240 Bravo, which fires the 308 762 NATO round. Uh, one could also say that the M249-er, which shoots the 5.56 round that is characteristically used in the M4, M16 weapon system platforms used throughout the West and others, we would consider those medium. We would consider heavy machine guns to be those like the Dishka, which is a 12.7-millimeter Machine gun—that's a very heavy round, by the way, almost half an inch across. Hence, the 12.5 millimeter or 50 caliber M2 Browning, which could also be found. Now, these are very large weapons—the dishkas and such. You'll also find anti-aircraft guns on the occasion. Now, of course, the dishka does that very same thing, but the 14.5 millimeter ZPU, which is based on the KPV HMB HMG design and the 23-millimeter Zhu-23-2 cannon. These are also Russian arms, and some sometimes you'll find Chinese copies that you'll find on the back of these, these technicals. You'll find recoilless rifles. It's the insurgents' probably principal anti-tank capability that they have, unless they've gotten a hold of javelins or something like that. Uh, you've got anti-tank-guided missiles, and a lot of those that you saw would probably not be toes and javelins and such, but most likely AT3 t- saggers, which are much cheaper and available off of the Russian market. And there's also Iranian copies of those which are used throughout the Middle East. On occasion you'd have multiple launch rocket systems, but that takes a characteristic competence and capability that is pretty much beyond the ken of most who engage in these. Some quick background on the great Toyota War between the Libyans and the Chads in nineteen eighty-seven. Since, since nineteen eighty-three, Chad was de facto partitioned, with the northern half controlled by the rebel Transitional Government of National Unity, known as GUNT, and supported by the ground, on the ground by Libyan forces, while the south was held by the Western-backed Chadian government, guided by Hissène Habré. This partition on the 16th parallel, so-called Red Line, into Libyan and French zones and influence, was formally recognized by France in 1984, following an accord between France and Libya to withdraw their forces from Chad. The accord was not respected by Libya, which maintained at least 3,000 men stationed in northern Chad. Now, during that period between 1984 and 1986, in which no major clash took place, Abre greatly strengthened the position thanks to Western support and Libya's failure to respect the Franco-Libyan-1984 agreement. From 84 onwards, the Gunt also suffered increasing factional tensions, centered on the fight between Gukhani, who was the presiding leader in the Gunt, and Akshid ibn Umar over the leadership of the organization. So taking advantage of the Gunt's difficulties, Abre struck a series of accords with smaller rebel factions, which left the Gunt at the beginning of 86 with only three of the 11 factions he'd originally signed the Lagos Accord with in 79. These remaining factions were Gukan's People's Armed Forces, and hence we have the prelude to the 1987 Toyota War, Toyota War in which the French trained and backed Southern Chadian forces were able to defeat the garrisoned combined Libyan and northern Chadian forces in a number of fights that took place. The background for this particular episode within this episode, I've drawn a lot of it from Kenneth Pollock's brilliant book, Armies of Sand, in which he discusses why Middle Eastern, Arab-centric, and Islamic-centric armed forces cannot excel in the conventional realm since the end of World War II but seem to have an uncanny ability to conduct irregular warfare, something, again, we will examine in future episodes, probably to include a review and discussion of Kenneth Pollack's book, Army of Sand, which I recommend to everybody listening right now. At the opening of 87, the last year of the war, the Libyan Expeditionary Force was still impressive, comprising 8,000 soldiers, 300 tanks, MLRS, regular artillery, MI-24 helicopters and 60 combat aircraft that Libya at this time in 87 could maintain 60 combat aircraft for the country that it was the size of. And the fact that it was an Islamic regime leaves me in wonder. Now, these forces didn't have a unified command, but were divided into two. So, apparently formidable, this Libyan military disposition in Chad was marred by serious flaws. The Libyans were prepared for a war in which they would provide ground and air support to their Chadian allies, act as assault infantry, and provide reconnaissance. But, by this time, Gaddafi had lost his allies. Exposing Libya's inadequate knowledge of the area, Libyan garrisons came to resemble isolated and vulnerable islands in the Chadian Sahara. Also important was the low morale among the troops who were fighting in a foreign country, and of course the structural disorganization one would find not only in the military of Libya, but in militaries throughout the Middle East. And of course Gaddafi, like so many in the Middle East, had a constant fear of military coup. Hence, as, as uh, Pollock says in his book, he talks about the nature of Praetorian guards and those kinds of military tapestries that emerge in these countries in which they don't trust their people and they build their armies not so much for expeditionary purposes as for the purposes of putting down rebellion in their very own country. So my characterization of the Chadian-Libyan War is the centerpiece of, of this particular episode to be emblematic of how this kind of irregular warfare works I don't want to dismiss or diminish the importance of technicals in Afghanistan, in Iraq, in the fight against ISIS, in the current fight in Syria, in the current fight in Libya, because if you're not paying attention and you haven't looked at the news lately or in the past several years, Libya is exhibit A of what happens when the Western world meddles in the leadership cadres or cultural tapestry of these developing countries and third world countries and then leaves and the, the, just the the existential human debris and deprivation that is left behind is something to behold. But we are going to characterize technicals in this particular episode by focusing on the Great Toyota War. Now, small groups of Toyota desert vehicles, and remember, from a warfare per- prospect, these behave in a horse cavalry or dragoon fashion. The distinction between those two is that Horseborne cavalry fights on their vehicles. Dragoons ride into battle on their horses, dismount, and fight as ground infantry, having used the horses as the fastest way to engage the enemy, either at the front, the flanks, or the rear. A gentle reminder that the Chadian National Armed Forces, being a Francophone nation, go by the, the um, abbreviation FANT, so you'll hear me employ that that abbreviation of FANT when we're talking about this. So by the mid-'80s, FANT was receiving strong U.S. support against their now-mutual enemy, Libyan dictator, Muammar Gaddafi. Including delivery of arms and munitions, the FANT leadership cleverly didn't ask their state sponsors for tanks or armored personnel carriers because they knew that they wouldn't be able to maintain them nor fight them. So they understood that their poorly trained troops would be unable to operate them effectively, in either the mechanical or tactical sense. Instead, they requested large quantities of Toyota Land Cruisers. Along with the Toyotas, they also got Hiluxes, which, as I mentioned before, are the African variant of what we know as Tacomas. And, of course, here in America, we're not able to have diesel-powered Tacomas nor Tundras. But most, if not all, of the Hiluxes and Land Cruisers that you find planet-wide outside of the Americas are not only manual stick shifts, but they're also diesel in order to be more miserly with fuel. Now, the fan could provide their forces with at least a limited air defense umbrella that forced Libyan pilots to fly higher and thus reduce their accuracy when they were conducting bombing, which by no stretch of the imagination could be considered precision. Now, with the Milan, much like the, uh, the Javelin, The Font finally also had the means to strike Libyan tanks at extended ranges. The Milan, being a French ATGM, it could easily apparently penetrate the armor of Libyan T-55s and 62s, according to Kenneth Pollack. The Land Cruisers meant they could get the Milans into positions where they could be most effective. I also suspect that the Land Cruisers, having owned four of them myself, they're quite... They're much more robust than a Hilux would be and probably have a higher GVWR than the Hiluxes would as far as getting the number of troops and the heavy kind of weaponry in place on the battlefield. Now, Pollock explains, quote, One serious problem experienced by Font Fant was that its tribal warriors had great difficulty modifying their traditional desert warfare tactics to apply to massed infantry operations. The new equipment provided by the Americans and the French particularly large numbers of Toyota four-wheel drive trucks equipped with cruiser weapons, allowed the FANT to return to the traditional tactics with which they were most comfortable and with the added benefit of modern firepower and mobility, this being the very mobile ambuscade and raid tactics that we even see going back to Lawrence in 1916 to 1918 in the Middle East. Now, like the SPLA in the Sahara, the FANT used swarming tactics, Suddenly appearing on the Libyans' flanks and striking decisively before a rapid withdrawal frustrated any prospect of counterattack. The Chadians could now use the Libyans' own dependency on slow, armor-heavy conventional formations against them. The Libyans were simply outpaced as, as the fan li- worked literal rings around them. And not only is this about speed, this is also about getting inside the enemy's OODA loop. Observe, orient, detect, and act. Thank you. Colonel Boyd, for uh, giving us that observation. He didn't invent OODA loop. He simply discovered it and gave it a name. Because the Chadians could now use the Libyans' own dependency on that slow, armor-heavy, conventional formation against them. Also, the fact that, as Pollock has pointed out, the flexibility, the speed, and the fog and the friction impacts on Middle Eastern armies is almost exponentially larger than untrained Western armies. Uh, I mean, they were striking them with the Milans, with the Zhu anti-aircraft cannons, which they would use in direct fire against both thin-skinned and thick-skinned Libyan armed forces formations. And then they disappear into the desert. So I'd like to quote sort of like a, um, a snapshot of what happened. You have something called the Battle of Wadi Dum which took place 22 March 1987 and i would urge you guys if you, i wish i could do this on a whiteboard and show you a map and but that's for the future sometime if i ever start a youtube channel or try to go video with this particular podcast which may not very well happen nonetheless the battle of wadi dum 22 March 1987 the air base at Wadi Duum was protected by infantry and anti-aircraft guns supported by T-55 tanks and BIMP BMP-1 infantry fighting vehicles behind rows of barbed wire and number of minefields. Now, despite this, and even after being warned of an impending attack, the Libyans managed to allow the FANT to breach the main gate and charge onto the airfield in the heavily armed BJ-45 Land Cruiser technicals. These BJ-45s tend to be tend to look like uh, FJ-40s, but they're pick, with pickup beds. For those of you familiar with Land Cruisers in the United States, the T-55s and BIMPs both faltered and became bogged in what the New York Times what a New York Times journalist described as the quote talcum powder like sand. End of quote. Terrified crews from a number of T-55s bailed as a fan. Technicals raced around the airbase, engaging targets at will. With Milan ATGMs and cannon machine gun fire, some fleeing Libyans were even caught in their own minefields. That's improper planning on the part of the NCOs. A key radar station controlling an SA-6 SAM battery was captured and later flown to France for technical examination. Remember, ladies and gentlemen, this is 1987, which means that the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact, despite being aged, sclerotic, arthritic, and at death's door are still alive and well as a live perceived threat to the West. And a pristine T-62 main battle tank was also taken, and it had been held in storage by the Libyans. There were 11 L-39 bombers and three Mi-24 hind attack helicopters. They were destroyed on the airstrip. One of the latter was also captured intact and transported to the United States for evaluation. The FANT had lost a dozen technicals from mine strikes for the most part as they attempted to breach one of the minefields in the mistaken belief that their lighter Toyotas would not set off anti-tank mines and a reported 29 were killed. The Libyans suffered a staggering 1,269 casualties in this raid in March of 1987. So I use that to sort of, in snapshot and characterization of 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 a of a, um, of a time and place how this was employed and how it was used. I mean, if you think about the circumstances from an irregular warfare perspective, the Chadians in this case are operating from structural weakness because they don't have tanks, they don't have IFEs, they don't have attack helicopters, they don't have jet aircraft, they don't have all of these things. But in order to make what I just described as heavy weaponry work, a lot of coordination, proper maintenance, and combined arms efficacy has to be employed to make those things work. What we have here is almost reminiscent of what happened nearly 45 years earlier when you would have the SAS and the Long Range Desert Reconnaissance Group, the Pink Panthers, operating in northern Africa in 1942 and 1943 using these raid and ambuscade tactics not only to Harry and Harris, the German and Italian armed forces there, but also to actually really take their toll by raiding airfields and other modalities like that that are so exposed on the ground to this kind of sabotage and well-coordinated attack. Again, hats off to Pollock. Uh, Something of a myth has developed around the Great Toyota War in so much as it is often claimed that the Milans were actually mounted on and fired from the Land Cruisers. As dramatic as this sounds, and certainly as we have seen, there were similar ATGM-equipped technicals in Beirut in the hands of the SPLA. But the author has been unable to establish any definitive truth to these accounts. All available evidence indicates that their French instructors taught the Chadians to dismount and deploy the ATGM, in this case the Milan, before quickly remounting and withdrawing. Certainly, this kind of tactic seems not only dragoon-like, but a much more likely avenue to success. Now, sadly, conflict continues to plague Chad, the Fant, victors of the great Toyota world, rebelled against their former leader in the French and Libyan-backed coup in 1990, and opposed this former leader. Decades later, in this grim civil war in neighboring Sudan's tragic Darfur region, the guerrillas of the Sudanese justice and equality movement, the JEM, fight what they term the Land Cruiser War, in likely unconscious homage to this Chadian conflict. And, you know, even their tactics are reminiscent of the FANT that I just described. For example, more than 30 JEM tacticals struck Al-Fashir Air Base in northern Darfur, destroying transport aircraft and hind-attack helicopters on the ground and escaping before the Sudanese could organize a response. Indeed, the gem hold an unlikely record. They deployed upwards of 300 technicals during one operation in a suburb of the Sudanese capital, Khartoum. A Times newspaper interview in 2009 by Anthony Lloyd noted one participant claiming, quote, you get in as close as you can, as fast as you can, and keep fighting whatever happens to your vehicle, end of quote. Nathan Bedford Forrest smiles at that. Damage to the interviewed fighter's pickup was explained, matter-of-factly, we got that from ramming enemy vehicles during fighting over the last month. Now, elsewhere in Africa, the technical also found favor. Uh, the Angolan Civil War saw heavy use of technicals by the insurgent UNITA, National Union for the Total Independence of Angola against the Russian and Cuban-backed FAPLA, which was the People's Armed Forces for the Liberation of Angola. And although primarily Toyota Land Cruisers mounting CPU-1s and Dishka HMGs, the insurgents' Casador hunter battalions included a number of CIA-supplied M998 Humvees, some of which were cut down to accommodate the recoilless rifles. In fact, the performance of UNITA in Angola in the 1990 Battle of Mavinga mirrored the Chadians during the Great Toyota War. The lightly armored but fleet-footed Cassador units outflanked the heavier and slower FAPLA T-55s and BIMPs, allowing them to attack and melt away in their pickup trucks before FAPLA could mount an effective counterattack. I also want to call to your attention that uh, in Kenneth Pollack's book, He does a really extraordinary job of analyzing what makes the Middle East so problematic when it comes to the conduct of their armies in conventional warfare versus irregular warfare. But he also brings to the fore not only the extraordinarily effective irregular warfare means that these Islamic states have exhibited since the end of World War II, but he talks about Cuban performance in a a fashion that I wasn't aware of, The Cubans had sent into Africa in the 1980s and up until the very early 90s their armed forces there to assist, reinforce, and actually fight on the ground. And Pollock gives the Cubans great credit for being very talented soldiers on the African frontier. I found that interesting. Again, that's something I may cover in a future episode. I wanted to mention, you'll you'll find technicals after World War II employed in so many theaters of conflict, uh, from Beirut to Africa to Somalia, Chechnya and the Balkans, Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya, Syria. My time in Afghanistan, I saw plenty of Hiluxes and a very large number of Toyota Land Cruisers. Now, not a lot of technicals. I know it doesn't seem appropriate that, well, during the Afghan war you wouldn't see a lot of technicals. That's because of the air dominance of the Allies and their ability to find a technical and destroy it from the air. Rob Crott, an American contractor who saw firsthand the ravages of the Civil War in 1998, noted in a 2001 article, both combatants, Taliban and Northern Alliance in this case, also have enhanced the firepower of light trucks by fitting them with 32-shot 57-millimeter rocket pods salvaged from combat helicopters from the 24 to the 25, And because of their combined mobility and firepower, they have been extremely effective in recent fighting, end of quote. You know, these are likely the Russian UB-3257 launchers, later seen in such prolific numbers in Libya after that great Toyota war. Intriguingly, there is some evidence Russian ground forces in Afghanistan, 1980s. Afghansi also mounted these launchers on their T-62 tanks, BTR-70 armored fighting vehicles, and even Ural trucks as direct-fire counter-ambush weapons. So prior to that U.S. intervention in 2001, the late spiritual leader of the Taliban, Mullah Omar, favored a white Chevy Suburban, whilst terrorist leader Usama bin Laden preferred an air-conditioned Toyota Land Cruiser, whilst his lieutenants drove twin-cab Toyota Hiluxes televised images of Taliban and al-Qaeda use of its products forced Toyota to issue a statement in 2001, clarifying that only a single Land Cruiser had been legally exported to Afghanistan in the previous five years and that all other Toyota vehicles seen in enemy hands were likely illegally smuggled into the country via the Duran line from Pakistan. Quote, «Toyota does not have a sales or distribution channel in Afghanistan, and we do not export vehicles to that country» explained the Japanese manufacturing giant, keen to distance themselves from any connection to al-Qaeda and their hosts. Now, ironically, as I was saying earlier, considering how much the technical has become associated with the Taliban through their use of the Hilux, very few actual technicals were employed by the insurgents after the fall of the Taliban government in 2001, and this was due largely to my mention of the U.S. and British air campaigns, That had destroyed the majority of these vehicles. Surviving technicals were very carefully shepherded. As in Somalia, they were seen as a prestige weapon and afforded considerable influence to their owner. And I want to repeat what I mentioned earlier in this podcast. You watched Black Hawk Down. You saw technicals. That does not conform with the reality on the ground at the time. Now, the Taliban will only risk their precious assets for particularly important or high-profile operations. British forces, for instance, in Helmand, recorded at least one technical mounting and anti-aircraft cannon in 2007, destroyed by a Javelin ATGM, but it wasn't until 2009 that the first significant technical activity became apparent. That's when they positioned a number of truck-mounted AA guns in preparation for a major offensive of battalion brigade strength by the Taliban against the provincial capital, Lashkargar. Two of these pickup-mounted ZPUs were destroyed by U.S. Air Force A-10s and F-15s in separate incidents in April of that same year. While we see these technical, originally commercially manufactured vehicles that were not destined to be military modalities, as I've discussed here, used by these irregular forces around the globe, primarily in the Middle East and Africa, it doesn't mean that the West is a stranger to these things. As I mentioned with the LRDG and their adoption of the Chevy 4x2 and 4x4 trucks that they used in 1942 and 1943, in the Libyan and North African desert fighting the Germans and the Italians, the Germans and the Italians to a much smaller degree also employed thin-skinned commercial vehicles in harassing and raid operations to a much lesser degree, than the LRDG, and with much less success. This doesn't mean that these Toyotas haven't been employed by Western forces. What you find, for instance, in Western SOF, uh, this would be American, British, and any number of European countries, diesel Hiluxes and diesel Land Cruisers are highly prized. I mean, if you put level level 7 armor in some of these Land Cruisers, you would find that they're very useful. A quick anecdote from my own time in Afghanistan. I was always amused by the Department of State for a number of reasons. But in this case, I was amused by the fact that they would purchase Toyota Land Cruisers, up-armor them. And, of course, these things weighed a lot and probably per taxpayer dime were about a half million dollars apiece to shuttle their Diplomatic and Department of State personnel out and about the frontier and throughout Afghanistan. Well, they also bought an armored tow truck in order to get these vehicles when they were stranded. But what you find is that armored tow truck that I knew that I had seen in the compound near Mazar-e-Sharif never left the compound to fetch a half-million-dollar Toyota Land Cruiser that had a flat tire or had some kind of uh, road hazard that made it immobile, they would simply call for the military to come by and open the sunroof and then put a thermite grenade through the sunroof or two to destroy and burn the entire vehicle and then evac the personnel who had been in the vehicle via another DOS or military vehicle. But when you're spending other people's money, that's the way you look at those kind of things instead of employing the million-dollar tow truck that you purchased for that very reason. I think the future of technicals in a regular warfare in the future to include unmanned and drone technicals is unlimited for the future. It's inexpensive. It's cheap. Very little trainings involved. As weapons platforms, they can perform those classic ambush, and raid tactics that the Chadians used to such a successful extent, and other armies and irregular warfare operators planet-wide since that time. So to me, the future is very bright for technicals, and I remain a huge fan of Toyota and an even bigger fan of Toyota Land Cruisers. Thanks for listening. This is Bill Bupert signing off. Comments, constructive criticism, questions, direct them to me at cgpodcast.pm.me. That is cgpodcast.pm.me. And thanks for joining me for this one-year anniversary episode. This is Bill, out.